Listener Production. Welcome back to Up Close, Conversations with Modern Veterans. In this episode, our veterans discuss their training and how it prepared them for the challenges ahead in their careers. Fred Campbell joined the Navy to learn a trade. There's two sides. I've got my trade training, which is the aircraft training, which started at HMAS Darimba, where we did two years of basically theory on, on aircraft. My, my trade is engines and airframes. And then at uh, the end of 1983, I turned up at HMAS Albatross, which is our, our naval air base. And when I got there, it was an exciting time. We had jets, we had fixed-wing um, aircraft, we had helicopters, we, had, we actually had an aircraft carrier at that stage. So the trade training started straight away. But it wasn't until I really hit the squadron that the, the other side of the training started where we, they train us to go to sea, they train us to fight fires on a ship, they train us to what happens if the ship gets attacked. So there's the two parts of the journey. We still, still operate our trade, um, work on aircraft, but outside that, they train us to be on a ship. We're on 400-foot bit of steel, and if something happens, everyone has to be able to keep that bit of steel going. The principle behind it is, is, is leadership, to be able to, to react to something without even thinking about it. Now, that doesn't mean we're autonomous and we, we just go and do things, but in certain situations, whether it be the firefight, whether it be someone attacking your ship, whether it be an aircraft, you, you will react in a certain way and everyone will react the same way. We take someone, and I was the same, a 15-and-a-half-year-old. I look at my boy who's now 23, when he was 15 and a half. I jokingly say he couldn't scratch himself, so I wonder if my dad was thinking the same way. But they take us from a basically a civilian, walking down the street, going to Woolies today, whatever, down the street, and turn them into a someone that the government can put in harm's way is, the, is a, probably a, a, a crude way of putting it. Basically training day, you get up in the morning, you'll do PT. So as a group, we'll go for a run around, do marathons, whatever they get us to do. And then we'd start our um, school training. So basically we went into a, uh, as a, as a class, went into a university-type arrangement. We're in a classroom. Now in between that, we'd do marching around, we'd do parades, we'd do that military side of the house. And they'd also be teaching us on the side on what it was like when you get on a ship with, you know, it could be you're in a mess with 60 people. You're going from a room with six people in it or four people so suddenly you're in the, probably the same size room with about 60 people. <laughs> so they teach us communal harmony. And that, that, that's typically part of the day. And um, remember, we never got leave until the weekend. And so, but instilled in that, they also, one, one every third weekend, we were duty. So we had to work on the base. So they instilled us in that. We'd do cafe parties where we'd be cleaning up after people having lunch and that side of it. But it's all revolving around that, that teamwork. Now, with us, we had some crusty old um, seniors, whether it be chiefs, warrant officers, leading seamen, POs, who were instilling their, um, their, their knowledge and their experience onto us, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And I guess young Fred, who joined to be a fitter and turner, he's going, oh, what am I marching around for? What's all this other stuff going? Were there moments of sort of frustration and second thoughts? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I said I joined originally to... Um, I joined to be a stoker, so I was going to be the fitter and turner, and then they said, oh, 
you can be this aircraft trade. And I went, well, that sounds nice. And I'm glad I did go down that path because, I mean, I'm, I'm not a plane spotter, but I do love my planes. Um, it was very strange because suddenly I'm, I'm going from this where I, had, I could walk around and do things like that, but I had to do it as a group. Fred Campbell is a rugby nut and says the New Zealand All Blacks provide a parallel to what he learned in the Navy. I love the All Blacks as, a, as, a, as an example because when they walk out, everyone is dressed the same. They've all got the same shoes on, the same boots on. Their socks are up, they're tucked in. And when they line up, they line up together and they sing together. And for the military, that's the way it is. We all dress the same, we're all trained the same, we talk the same. And that has the same effect as those All Blacks. It's a strong um, collaboration if everyone is looking, doing the same, and that's why they're so powerful. There was 12 of us in a class and we had to march together and we had to work together and and, and suddenly I'm also meeting people from um, all around Australia. Um, I'd never seen a pair of moccasins till I met someone from Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> so on one side it was an adventure and exciting, on the other side a lot of trepidation, a lot of trepidation because we're still young, we're still... <laughs> I think back 15 and a half and suddenly you've got these, these old people who are really only 20 um, yelling at you and carrying on. So what were the steps of your training? So, you, um, yeah, just take us through the steps as you're progressing through to, to become fully fledged. The old apprenticeship used to be, you know, you do four years, but in that you do one, um, a normal civilian apprenticeship. You do four years in the trade working under a tradesman and you would go to, to TAFE or tech at the time once a week to do your theory training. What they did with us was do two years of theory, then we go and do two years on a squadron where we get a, a task book and we have to sign off doing certain tasks. So really that first four years was, was mostly concentrating on um, getting my trade training. And we had this, this other thing where we had to march around in the background of that. It wasn't until we hit the squadron that suddenly this operationally thing started coming in because you're suddenly meeting pilots who are training to go and rescue people at sea, to land on the backs of ships and, and things like that. So it wasn't really till I hit Albatross that the, the realism come in. Remember, it's great and there's elements of it, but it's still a um, boarding school for want of better words. When I joined 82, there was, uh, I mean, Vietnam was, you know, we say 10 years um, previous when we pulled out, but we'd actually things like the Falklands started to happen. That was a, a realistic thing because, you know, we, we were going to get the illustrious and... Uh, that, that didn't happen because of this war in the middle of the, the Atlantic somewhere, which I'd never heard of before. And there was um, lead up to that, but there wasn't really the, for us, there wasn't too much operationally going on. But I just wanted to get to sea. I just wanted to feel what it was like. Heard these stories about going to exotic ports like, you know, Hawaii, going up to Southeast Asia. That's what it was about. It was about going on these fun deployments not anything operational. I just want to do that. I want to get on the on a ship and do that thing that they talk about and visit these exotic ports. I was thinking about going to Hawaii and just enjoying myself or once again Southeast Asia, up to Thailand and um and Hong Kong and, and all that. That's that was my strategic thinking of the 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 operational world. And I look I was quite thankful. I, I got to go to sea in nineteen eighty six. So it wasn't long after I actually joined I got to go to to see for the first time on HMAS Darwin. So I was quite excited to, um, to do that. And that's really when I got on the ship and suddenly you started to feel, well, training for something. There was nothing going on, but we were still training to do that if we were hit by a missile, if we were hit by whatever. So there was that excitement, but there was also the excitement of a, 
a helicopter landing on the back of a ship and I was I, I, going off to Hawaii. I went to Hawaii in 1988 for my first time on the back of a ship. So, so that was my strategic thinking of the world. <laughs> Lorraine Hatton found a new family in the army. Everybody was in the same boat. They didn't know what was going on, what was going to happen. Well, it, what was really funny is I had my girlfriend take me to enlistment day. I took the oath and um, she said, Lorraine, you went in one door and I didn't see you for 20 years. And she moved on with her life and I moved on to my life. And when I discharged, I actually caught back up with her, you know, 20 years later. <laughs> it was hilarious. Training. You've already got through the side door, through the reserve, recruiting, you're in. Um, you're standing in the ranks there. You look around. Do you see any other Indigenous faces? No. It's funny. When you're all in the same boat and you're experiencing the same training of, you know, people yelling at you, telling you to get off the bus, you know, all you're doing is like dragging your kid around to, you know, and it, it's all a mad rush when you first get there until you settle in. So everybody's got that same scared look on their face when you first start joining. <laughs> you know, but you don't really look until somebody asks you. Because I didn't. When you look at my family, we come in all different colours. I've got brothers who are lighter than me and sisters who are lighter than me. I've got brothers and sisters who are darker than me. So, you know, we're all from the same Cadbury's. We're just like dark chocolate, milk chocolate, white chocolate, that sort of thing. And when you hit the army, you're just all green. That's it. That's it. You're from the same army, but you're just all different colours. <laughs> I was at uh, Kapuka at Army Recruit Training Centre and I was there for three months and... Because it was the initial start of the change for women actually training at the same place as the men, I don't think they really knew what to do with us. So they just put us through the same basic training as the men. The biggest challenges that um, or difficulties a lot of women had was we had to go up and down the ropes twice with our webbing and rifle and full kit. And because it takes a technique and a lot of strength they, they sort of had to change that one. I think women only had to do it once in the, like, in the future platoons. There was another one, and I always laugh about this, there was this obstacle, and I was watching the guys go through their obstacle and they were screaming and yelling and getting really aggressive and they're going, ah, like this. And I said to the corporal, why don't we do that? And he said, okay, recruit Beard, because that was my name at the time. I want you to get up and I want you to scream across this obstacle. So I did it and I've gone up there and I've gone, ah, and I got to the end, jumped off and then I giggled and he goes, and that's why women don't do it. <laughs> uh, where was your first deployment? I mean, you, you, you got through training? After my training, I was sent to Watsonia where they had the School of Signals because I was in Signals Corps. Then I was allocated to my trade, which was up at Seven Sig Regiment in Toowoomba, and that was as an op-sig and what they, their listeners, satellites, technicians, that type of work. You have to do a psych test. And when I did my psych test, I got my scores back and they said, oh, here are all the jobs that are available that you can do according to my psych test. 
My first question, once again, because I was so naive and very focused, is which one earns the most money? I'll do that. That's how I chose my job. Very much a peacetime army for, I'd say, the first five to eight years. Had you considered about being deployed in a war zone? Yes. I actually, when um, they had deployments to Cambodia, Somalia, Rwanda, I applied to them all. Maybe it was a part of the adventure. Maybe it was the part of, you know, doing my job overseas. Um, And you get paid more when you get deployed overseas too, don't you? You do, but because that was, what, between five and eight years, my, my focus had changed by then. It was more... It was more focused on doing my job. I think because I I had that security that I didn't have to worry about money anymore and that's when I really started to focus on what I could do and what I could achieve. In 98, we did a humanitarian relief up in the mountains of Womana in Irian Jaya. They had a, a catastrophe up there and we... We went over with uh, the aviation element of Blackhawks and delivering rice up to the villages. The September 11 attacks changed the course of history and also many military careers. David Nicholson had been in the Navy helping to guard our borders, but he was eager to get to the front line on the war on terror. So in 2009, he switched to Army. His aim was to join the 2nd Cavalry Regiment of the Royal Australian Armoured Corps. It was just a matter of waiting time of that four years to tick over and uh, once it did, it was uh, speaking to my captain and he fully supported it. Um, His brother-in-law was Cav, um, so when I said I wanted to go Cav, he... uh, he basically pushed the paperwork through and I think I was gone within four six months. My next door neighbour in Darwin, he was um, he was army, and he was just about to head over to Afghanistan when I was just transferring. So I knew a little bit, but I didn't know a whole lot um, because he was obviously flat out with workups and and getting ready to uh, deploy. So even though I was in, I still didn't know a lot about what was happening in Afghan and what we were doing. So it was basically uh, a guessing game until I got there. In contrast to your father's service and other family members, this was now asymmetric warfare. Didn't always know who the enemy was. Uh, How were you prepared for that? When I did come home, um, before I was deploying, I went to a rugby game to go watch a couple of mates. And one of the guy's dads was uh, an infantry lad in Vietnam. And he said the same thing. He's like, you're not going to know who the... um, who the enemy is, he's like, it's going to be hard, mate. And I asked him a few questions and he said, it's, it's just not going to be easy. He's like, it's gone are the days of the uniforms and he's like, they're everywhere. You don't know who's who. He's like, and I'll be farmers. I took that on and, you know, you get there and you see exactly that. Um, you know, it, it de- definitely makes it a lot harder when everybody looks looks the same and they all wear the same thing. The... Militia guys that work with you cruising around in the exact same thing the Taliban are. So guys cruising around on motorbikes with AKs coming towards you, but they work with you. And you would have been 
made familiar with an acronym you may not have heard before, IED, Improvised Explosive Device. What was the training you were given around dealing with that phenomenon? Um, so I was the... I was the engineer car, so I was lead vehicle. So we had um, heaps of training with that with the boys. We'll go do dry runs. Um, the engineers will place, you know, ID components, and you know they'll they'll mess up the the ground a little bit, make little scenarios. They'll put rocks on the ground uh, to mark as uh, indicators, uh, things like that. Um, anything that they've experienced before we went over they played it out on us um, for training. Because it wasn't just about surviving the blast, it was about continuing to do your job after the blast and keeping yourself and your mates safe and continuing the mission. Yes. How was that approached? Just repetitive training over and over again. When it came out to doing it overseas, it kicked straight in. I got a couple of videos of our IEDs and you can hear, obviously, you can hear and see everything um, that's going on in the video and it's it's exactly like training. It, everyone kicks straight into what they need to do and it's, it's really good videos to watch back to uh, see, see that actually happening. Um, you know, you hear it all the time. You know, training kicks in and, and it does. Kim Morgan Short was building a military family while also training in the Air Force Reserve. Her husband, Anthony Short, was one of a select group of fast jet pilots who had ambitions to reach for the stars. So he started off as an F-111 pilot and he went through uh, a couple of uh, squadrons. So they start off in 6th Squadron, which was a training squadron, moved to one squadron, which was at the time the war squadron. He then went off to United States Navy Test Pilots course where we packed up and moved to America and my second child was born in the States and who knew she ended up an American citizen. And then Shorty got posted after America to ARDU, Aircraft Research and Development Unit, which is down in Edinburgh, in South Australia. He was a test pilot at that stage and he flew the Dakota uh, he flew multiple other aircraft. But to do the F-111 test work, he had to keep coming back up to Ambly, which is in Queensland. So there I was in Adelaide with three children, uh, a husband who was actually staying with my parents up in Brisbane, and I'm down in Adelaide juggling school, children, working and reserve work at the time. So he eventually got posted back up to Ambly. So I was really grateful because it was actually where my parents live. And we uh, thought we would buy our forever house. We knew that we'd ultimately get posted away from that house. We knew we'd end up in Canberra at some point where his mother lived. And so we decided that we'd buy the forever home. Fantastic. So uh, what was the decision to, to, to join the reserves about? I think that I wanted to serve as well. I really felt strongly about that. And as I said before, I had felt strongly about that for a long time. Uh, I think that at the time I did it, it was very much a push for women to join in as uh, doctors in the Air Force. Even back then, you could join as a pilot, but I've never wanted to be a pilot or never wanted to do anything in flying because I get airsick. And my whole life has been revolving around pilots and I've actually thrown up in every aircraft that the Air Force has 
and I've thrown up in a couple of army helicopters as well. So uh, I just wanted to do my bit. And apart from anything, the people that I met, particularly in the reserve, these are all people who gave off their time. And uh, in the old days, they were from all walks of life, all different sorts of careers. And we'd all meet up one weekend in four and do a couple of weeks here and there in different courses. And there was a riotous social life that was involved in that as well. But here's a whole lot of people, policemen, firemen, uh, accountants, uh, clerks, investors, nurses, doctors, all coming and giving off their time to put the uniform and serve their country. And I always felt really grateful to be a part of that group. And and I look back on the people that were in the reserve with me and I was always impressed by, again, the juggling they did with their lives to do that service. Anthony Shaw was one of our finest pilots, highly, highly trained in the in the, the top echelon of, of um, Air Force pilots. But he also had a healthy disrespect for some of the pomp and circumstance of the military and, you know, his his role was to be a pilot. How did he reflect that in, 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 his, in the way he approached it? He was a bit of a larrikin and uh, he had a thing from test pilots course, the American military flying boots were suede, not uh, leather. And I remember one time uh, one of his colleagues said to me, the commanding officer was talking about them going on uh, deployment to America uh, to Las Vegas, and he said, I want everybody's uniforms just right and I want their boots shiny. And then he just folded his arms and did a sigh and looked at Shorty and went, except for you, Shorty, because Shorty had these suede boots that he never cleaned. Uh, everyone thought he was sleeping because he was lazy, but he was thinking and he was thinking about physics or maths. And then the instructor would point his finger and say, you know, what is the answer to this, Shorty? And Shorty would sit up, look around, and then spit out 100% correct answer every single time. So he wasn't disrespectful to the uniform and he doesn't wasn't disrespectful to the Air Force, but he was certainly not as uh, sharp and shiny shoes as he possibly could be. Because he told people his job was not to look good but to fly fast jets. Well, I think that's what he thought, and uh, he certainly wasn't into the administrative, administrivia, as he used to call it, and uh, in those days, there was much more help for them. These days, people have to do their own administrative work and paperwork and booking flights and booking travel. Uh, Shorty used to just go up to the uh, people in the administration room and get them to help him, but of course, that can't be done these days. What sort of discipline is required to fly those jets? I think that uh, there's got to be a yearning. And I know that uh, both Shorty and my second husband, Stu, wanted to be pilots from the time they were little boys. And some of the female pilots that I'm now uh, very close friends with, they have wanted to be pilots from the time they were young. My son wanted to be a pilot from the time he was a toddler. Uh, I think if there's got to be something in you that drives you. This is an exciting thing. I, I actually have some of my friends, one of them took Ayrton Senna for a ride in the F-111 and possibly made him ill. Uh, my husband, Stuart, actually took the guy who owns 
the Aston Martin racing team for a fly in the tornado, which is another jet in Britain. And, uh, you know, this is someone who does race cars and he was absolutely thrilled uh, to be in there. And I do think it takes a mathematical brain. You've got to have some sort of vectors in your head. You've got to have no fear and you've got to have a bit of discipline to a point because you are putting your life on your line every single day that you get in them. Yes, it's a calculus of risk. That's right. How did he approach that? I think he was careful. Obviously, he died in a crash, so um, there was lots of factors in that. And I think that there were there was a tolerance of risk in the, shall I say, the old days uh, that they don't tolerate these days. And that's for good and bad. Um, a lot of the people who were in Shorty's era, have since gone on to become leaders in the Air Force. And I think they took all of the lessons learnt. My my late husband, Stuart, thought that they'd taken things too far and that the the tolerance for risk was too low, that they've now have zero tolerance for any risk. And he didn't think that was compatible with um, a warfighting machine. It's very difficult. I don't know. I'm the one who's sitting at home without any husbands. Uh, I, you know, I don't like risk, but I accept that we're in the military and there's risk in everything we do. And I've deployed to the Middle East. I took a risk as well. Next, the nature of the job changes for our men and women of the ADF as Australia goes to war. Up Close, Conversations with Modern Veterans is a listener production in association with the Australian War Memorial. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Executive producer is Todd Stevens. Audio production by Ed Gooden and Link Kelly. Listener.